Welcome to The Dark Divide, a podcast that takes a seat, dangles its legs over the edge, and stares into the abyss. This is the story of Christina Grimmy. The age of social media changed the game for celebrity interaction. Where your favorite Hollywood stars once felt as if they existed in some secret, untouchable land, they were now accessible right at your fingertips. We went from having to wait for magazines to hit the stands, telling us whatever filtered version of gossip or truth they had, to directly knowing, hearing, and seeing from celebrities themselves about everything in their lives, sometimes right down to what they're eating or drinking. With the creation of things like Twitter and Instagram, we're almost able to foster a deeper connection by viewing their lives through a closer lens. Sometimes even getting acknowledgement or interaction back. No more waiting for hours in some line at a signing. You could just send a tweet, tag a photo, or leave a comment whenever you wanted to let them know that you were a big fan. The access to information like this quickly became a double-edged sword. Complete strangers can use social media like research, and the fine line between interest and fixation can get blurred. Statistics found in a 2017 study that social media stalking is much more common than face-to-face stalking. And the difference with cyber-stalking is that nearly half of the cases, the victim is stalked by someone they didn't know. Cases that involve prior knowledge were almost always an ex-partner. It's a lot easier to know who keeps suspiciously walking past your front door versus who checks your profile a thousand times a day. And we can't see the person, we can't read their body language, or more importantly, experience the energy and the feeling that they give to us. Essentially twisting up our instinctive self-preservation with things like adoration, validation, and dopamine hits. There's pleasure in escapism, in living vicariously through details we wouldn't normally be privy to. What they're doing, who they are, the things they like, who they spend their time with. Piece by piece, we further build up this idea of a person in our mind. We see parts of ourselves in them and relate. We feel a kinship, maybe a sense of protection or even just longing. Kevin James Loibel was often glued to his phone whenever he had the chance, finding comfort in the avoidance of his own life. He wasn't necessarily depressed, but he wasn't happy either. And there was something fascinating in the passion and drive that he saw in so many other people— Friends, family, romantic relationships, passionate career objectives. He had none of those. As he scrolled from the comfort of his apartment in St. Petersburg, Florida, he felt a seeking in him that longed to crawl away from the emptiness inside. He'd never really had much of a plan for the future, but turning 27 soon and working part-time at Best Buy with no prospects to speak of hadn't exactly been what he had in mind. He had a bit of a hard time relating to people, but with a screen between them, they were less intimidating— And Kevin knew that he came across as a sort of hermit. He darkened his apartment with aluminum foil and heavy curtains blocking the windows. He preferred the quiet lack of light, a reprieve from the constant beeping and talking and music at work. His own love of tech and video games made the job manageable, but he still felt best when he was locked up in his room, alone. Kevin had thought all those cliché things he heard about being struck by Cupid's arrow had been nothing more than an adorable story to sell cards on Valentine's Day. But on a random day in 2015, while scrolling through videos online, he came across the most beautiful girl he'd ever seen. She almost didn't seem real. Her straight brown hair framing her face, her big hazel eyes staring straight into his soul. She was singing and playing piano, and Kevin was instantly smitten.
After a little more looking around, he learned that she was also into video games, just like he was. She was so funny, so captivating. He'd never really experienced such a hunger for any morsel of information that he could get like this. He followed all of her social media platforms so he could read her tweets, see her photos on Instagram, and watch her videos on YouTube. There was just something about her face, something about her voice that made him feel unabashedly drawn to her. But Kevin would also hold back, keeping himself on the sidelines and observing until the time was right. His thinning hair, his awkward smile, his thick glasses, it all had to go. She wasn't just anybody. Her own perfection demanded the same from him. Kevin had watched hours and hours of her YouTube videos, scrolled through hundreds of photos and tweets, collecting evidence that they were practically soulmates. And sure, he hadn't spoken to her yet, but when he did, he would say the perfect thing. He would tell her how he's been waiting and wishing and hoping for this moment. She would look at him and know that it was true. Only a few on the outside could view that Kevin's interest was borderline obsessive. His coworker Corey would tease him about sneaking his phone out onto the sales floor, always keeping tabs on his lover girl. It wasn't like he was hurting anybody by going around calling this girl his soulmate, but sometimes Corey really couldn't tell if Kevin was totally serious or just stuck in some dreamland. And at first it was harmless, but lately Kevin had been fixated on her more and more. He would talk about the one-sided obsession as if it was a mutual, real-life partnership. And even without speaking one word to this girl, Corey had watched Kevin slowly transform different parts of himself with the goal of a relationship in mind. He got LASIK eye surgery, hair implants, and even started whitening his teeth. Dude, don't you think that's a little much? Corey asked him one day. I mean, you haven't even met her yet, and the chances of that happening are... But Kevin cut him off threatening to never speak to him again if he insulted him that way. This was his soulmate, and he expected everybody else to take it as seriously as he was. He finally had something. He had someone to live for. Ugh, whatever, man. You know she has a boyfriend, right? Corey shook his head and walked off towards the back end of the store, leaving Kevin there in a brief pause of internal panic. Boyfriend? This is the problem with other people, Kevin thought. They think they know better. They think they have a right to interfere. Of course she was special to the world, but she was the most special to him. Nobody else had devoted as much time and effort and adoration to her as Kevin had. After all, the girl that he couldn't stop talking about and thinking of and watching online was up-and-coming pop star Christina Grimmie. And there wasn't room for anybody else in the picture. Because soon, Kevin would make sure that if he couldn't have Christina, nobody would. Marcus and Christina grew up in New Jersey and had what some might consider an all-American childhood. Tina and Albert Grimmy raised their children on Christian values and a strong sense of service to community. They were your typical happy backyard barbecue and Sunday church type of family, where the roots in loyalty and love run deep. And that loyalty hadn't been without its tests. Tina was a cancer survivor, and the fleeting nature of life wasn't lost on the Grimmy family. There had been points in their lives when ordinary days were the only thing that they prayed for. Albert had noticed his daughter's talent by the time she was six years old, he'd later boast. She had pitch and tone beyond a child, and a keen sense for rhythm and memorization. By the time she learned how to play the piano at ten, it was obvious that this interest-turned-hobby had morphed into a sticking passion. Christina's vocals were bright and feminine, but powerful and surprising. She could easily command an entire room with nearly perfectly executed belts and melismas effortlessly. 
After some encouragement from a friend, Christina started uploading song covers to YouTube under the username ZeldaLove64, an ode to her huge love of video games. The first video she uploaded was a cover of Hannah Montana's Don't Want to Be Torn. Hi, I'm going to be singing I Don't Want to Be Torn by Hannah Montana. And I'm going to be playing on piano. And if some of the notes are wrong, you know, whatever. I'm playing it for like, I guess a week now. Hope you like it. Nowadays, the idea of putting a video of yourself online for a bunch of strangers is so commonplace, but in 2009, it was still such new territory. Albert had an inkling that this could only lead to good things, but Tina wasn't so quick to jump on board. Eventually, she gave in, with caution. She's a joy. How did I feel about her putting videos on YouTube? Okay, absolutely not. She was like, you need to get off the internet before some creepy man comes and tries to like track you down. And my dad was more like, okay, no, this is a good idea. Let's, uh, you know, see how well she does. She comes to me with her iPod and she's checking her email. And she says, dad, there's something wrong with my email. It's, I delete them, but they're still there. So I take it and I delete 50. And there's still 50 there, but they're 50 different ones. And I'm like, delete 50 more. There was thousands of emails, like overnight. So then there was a wedge because I was saying, if it's okay, it's not that bad. We'll monitor as close as we can. I lost. And then things started happening. And then you know what I did? I just prayed more. The, the party in USA was the third one she put out. At just 15 years old, she had no idea that this endeavor would be the springboard for her musical career. She thought it was just an easier way to keep everyone in the loop on her covers, but she was also smart about using the platform to her advantage, choosing popular songs that were being searched all the time. By the time she shared her cover of Miley Cyrus's Party in the USA, her channel was getting notable recognition. She was homeschooled the following year for her junior year of high school, which also gave her a lot of time to work on songs. And YouTube also gave her a community of like-minded creators. She collaborated with other performers, collecting millions of views over the years. And in 2011, she won a YouTube contest, putting her next to channels like Selena Gomez, Nicki Minaj, and Justin Bieber. Selena Gomez would end up playing a massively significant role in Christina's career. This had allowed her to be discovered by Mandy Teefee, Selena's mother. Eventually, Mandy and Selena's stepfather Brian became Christina's managers. I really wanted to let you guys know, um, I wanted to tell you how thankful I am and how blessed I am that all this is even happening to me. I'm staying in a really awesome place and just a lot of great things are really gone for me. I really, I wouldn't have gotten this far. I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for you and all that you've said to me, Dawn, just everything. You know, everything from the comments to the video responses to everything. It's just you guys are really, really great, and I just love you so much. I feel like I don't say that enough, so I'm just trying to let you guys really, really know that I, I love you. I really do. Now that I've said the word love about a billion times, I'm about to write a song right now, actually. Um, where's my pencil? Anyway, I was about to write a song, and I'm having a bit of a weird writer's block. Just listen to some Christina Aguilera. 
So, um, again, thank you. I love you so much. Okay, see ya. And there's Selena Gomez right there. Hi, guys. Hi. Yeah, yeah. No, no. Hi. There's Selena. Oh, you're always fabulous, dear. <laughs> okay, I will come watch a movie with you. It almost felt like within the blink of an eye, she had transported from singing in her bedroom to singing on stage in front of hundreds and thousands of people. The mentorship from the TIFI team, as well as Selena herself, catapulted Christina into a spark of stardom. She performed at events with acts like the Jonas Brothers, ever growing her fan base and reaching new audiences and crowds with a hunger for the next new hit. She'd also end up touring for six weeks with Selena Gomez in the scene, only reaffirming her desire for a life of music. Things were a whirlwind, but Christina had no trouble keeping up. She was made for this. I am, am so psyched. I, I don't know who's more excited, me or my mom. I'm going on a summer tour around the U.S. and I think parts of Canada with Selena Gomez and All-Star Weekend. I think it's even cooler that I played at the same concert with Selena and All-Star Weekend at the UNICEF concert and the City of Hope concert. I'm gonna play some of my originals. I know a lot of you have been wondering if I even write songs. Um, I've been writing my entire life and it's my passion, it's my dream, it's everything to me. And what I'd really love to do is actually meet some of you guys. At my merchandise table, after, after I sing, I'll be there and you can come say hi to me. I'd love to meet you guys and uh, sign some shirts. Some of you are new, some of you have been with me since the beginning and I've don't think I don't read your comments, I totally see them, and they just, some of them make me cry, because you guys just, little tear jerkers, that's what you are. If you'd like to purchase tickets, and, uh, you know, figure out... After independently releasing an EP, debuting a single on Radio Disney, uploading a music video, and appearing on an episode of The Ellen DeGeneres Show, Christina was finally starting to make a name for herself. So much so that the 39th American Music Awards invited her to perform at the pre-show, and that night, she also won her first award. Hi, Christina. Hi. So you've got a little award here for new media. And yeah, I wanted to find out from you um, what you're doing with new media. Uh, well, this is an award that they just came up with uh, this year, and it's mainly uh, making it Not only was she making waves on stage, but Christina was also landing gigs and commercials for brands like Xbox, Doritos, Coca-Cola, and Disney. It was clear that this is only going to keep getting bigger. It made sense to leave her hometown in New Jersey and move out to Los Angeles in 2012. Just three years before, she'd been sharing lo-fi covers on her keyboard to a channel with zero subscribers. And now she was pursuing a legitimate musical career that was already surpassing her wildest dreams. And even though Christina wanted to focus more on original music, her magnetic stage presence would land her a spot on season six of NBC's singing competition, The Voice. The Voice is meant to showcase America's undiscovered talent by giving contestants a chance to audition and work with one of four musical icon coaches. Auditions are blind, meaning that the coaches' backs are turned and their decisions are based solely on voice and not on looks. The chairs have the ability to rotate, and as each act comes on, the audience anxiously waits to see how many will turn around. If a coach is impressed by the artist's voice, they push a button to select them for their team. 
Showing off her power ballad skills, Christina chose to sing Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. Not only did she get all four coaches to turn around in their chairs, but they fought for her passionately, hearing the potential immediately. The contestant gets to choose, and Christina chose Maroon 5 singer Adam Levine. He promised to fight for her like nobody else would, and it was a promise that he followed through on. What's your name? My name is Christina Grimmy. People come out here and they sing, and you never know what to expect. And then you turn around, and you start to see how engaging and passionate, and you're more comfortable than I am up there, almost. Wow. And that is the moment where you realize that this person can be a huge star. I mean, I really believe that. Thank you so much, Adam. Thank you. And it's going to get bloody, and we're going to fight, but I'm going to fight harder Christina. than you. No, no, no harder than me. No one fights harder than no, me. No, no one Six fights. seasons. Six seasons. He hasn't had a day off. He's tired. Do I look tired? Yes. Listen, you look fine, Adam. <laughs> hey, Christina, what, what do you love? I mean, who, who, who inspires you the most? My mom. She's had breast cancer three times. Oh, and um, I thought she wouldn't get to see me do anything like this. So I love my mom, and I'm happy I got to do this for her. Right on. It's time to choose. Who do you think as your coach? I love you all. Oh, my gosh. Adam. Christina made an impression both on camera and off. Before the show, she would lead worship meetings with other Christian contestants who were missing their regular church events back home. She was always the first one to wish someone good luck and hold their hand during the high-pressure moments. And she received tons of support from people like Selena Gomez and Justin Bieber, artists whose songs she'd just been covering a few years ago in her bedroom. Christina would end up winning third place and shocking a good portion of the audience that she didn't win first. But this had been life-changing exposure for her. And by 2016, she dropped a major label debut album and was on top of the world. She was just getting started with creating original music, touring the globe, and meeting her fans from all over. Christina always had a feeling that the world would know her name. And she was right. Something electric ran through Kevin's body when he saw that Christina would be singing at the Plaza Live in Orlando, Florida on June 10th, 2016. Throughout all his years of watching her every move, he never thought their paths would cross so soon. He figured maybe, at best, he'd have to somehow get into streaming online and meet her that way. He had fantasized about a thousand different scenarios in his head, but this was better than any daydream. Kevin bought a $15 ticket and celebrated by watching her videos for hours. He knew every single feature of her face by heart, every physical tendency and habit that she had. The hours and days were crawling by as he counted down to when he'd finally be in the same room as Christina. He also waited patiently through the five-day waiting period for the two guns that he'd just purchased. He kept them in a case under lock and key in his bedroom without telling anybody, not his brother, his father, or his father's girlfriend, who were now unknowingly living in a house with firearms. If Kevin planned to do anything, 
Nobody around him would have suspected that. During his last shift before the concert, he returned a few science magazines that he borrowed from Corey, telling him, I love you, brother, saying that he was tired and ready to ascend, which could have meant a few things. Fair to say this was both out of place and not for Kevin, who had little to say, and when he did, it usually didn't make sense to anybody. He had a tendency to be deep or dramatic sometimes, and other times withdrawn and quiet. He'd told Corey many times that he loved him more than his own brother, so Corey was unaware that this wasn't just a vulnerable moment. It was a goodbye. Kevin was ready for the next chapter in his life, even if he had to kick the door down in order to get there. What he mistook for love was a desire for ownership. And beneath all that calm exterior was a vengeful, jealous, and desperate boy. The morning before the concert, Kevin packed up his Nike drawstring backpack with the basic toiletries, his new firearms, tiny boxes containing 75 rounds of hollow-point bullets, and his wallet. He also took extra magazines, even more extra ammo, and a hunting knife. He took the hard drive out of his computer, hid it, and called a taxi. Nobody in his family, nor his only friend Corey, knew that he was going to Orlando to see Christina. After the two-hour drive from St. Petersburg to the courtyard by Marriott on Magnolia Avenue in Orlando, Kevin bought $16 worth of food from the hotel snack bar and settled into room 643. June 10th was another pleasant rung on the ladder for her blooming career, and Christina was excited for the show. She'd be opening for a band called Before You Exit, and even though her name wasn't on the venue marquee, she posted an announcement begging her fans to come. This is a prime time for any diehard fan. When acts are small enough that they still sign autographs at their own merch table, it's an intimate feeling for an audience. And Christina could never quite predict who would show up in a line to wait for her, because her fan base literally covered all different kinds of people. Being quite shy, it was always bittersweet for her. She loved meeting people who'd been touched by her music in some way. This is what she'd dreamt of since she was a little girl. But the social demands of the spotlight didn't come naturally to her. So before each show, Christina would give herself a little mental pep talk, reminding herself that she was surrounded by people who wanted to meet her, not judge her. And even though she was wracked with anxiety, afterwards she always felt overwhelmed with gratitude for what her life had become. She also knew what it was like to be a fan, and making her audience feel like she was accessible and cared about them was her priority. She'd stay for hours until every last person had time to talk to her and take photographs. There was absolutely no way that Christina, or anyone, could have known that Kevin was on his way to the Plaza Live with weapons. Kevin got ready in the regular way he would for any event. He brushed his teeth, got dressed, and packed up his belongings as if he'd be checking out after the concert. He clipped two gun holsters to the inside of the back of his black jeans and wrapped the knife in a cloth before strapping it to the inside of his left ankle. He buttoned up his blue, white, and red flannel over a black shirt and took one last glance in the mirror. Before the show, he stopped at a nearby Old Navy, purchasing a black baseball cap to complete the outfit. Kevin looked like everyone else while he waited in line. Purses, bags, and backpacks were checked by security, but Kevin had nothing on him except the concert ticket and his wallet. He passed through with no issue, walking by a sign prohibiting firearms. The Plaza Live is a smaller local venue. The space usually has its seats removed for crowds to stand and enjoy a close-up show, General admission for standing usually holds around 1,250 people at capacity. The night wasn't packed, but it was definitely a full house. Kevin found a spot in the back against the wall, stuck his hands into the pocket of his jeans, and intently watched Christina sing. When her performance ended around 10 p.m., Christina headed back to the merch table to meet fans as usual. 
She may not have been the main act, but there were still dozens of people lined up, some having been starstruck by her voice that night, knowing someday this girl's signature would be a big deal. Others having been huge fans from the very start, YouTube subscribers who knew all of her inside jokes and her favorite song covers. Christina always kept an open mind, and most importantly, never tried to judge anyone or critique their intentions. Even someone like Kevin, who may have stuck out to the people around him, wouldn't have caused Christina to act any differently than she would with anyone else. Exposure from previous endeavors like The Voice had brought her into the musical collection of an older audience, and she was used to having everyone from little children to full-grown adults praising her and asking her for photographs. As she was wrapping up a conversation with a few fans who were telling her how much they loved her, Kevin took a deep breath and stepped forward as if to make his way next in line. As was her way, Christina immediately noticed his hesitance and opened up her arms to welcome him over. At 10.24 p.m., without speaking a word, Kevin pulled out a 9mm Glock, firing at point-blank range and fatally shooting Christina, twice in the chest and once in the head. Already dead, Christina would not see her brother Marcus jump over the merch table, attempting to tackle Kevin. He hadn't even thought about it, just instinctively dove in front of his sister before more bullets could pierce her body. Even though Marcus and a few others attempted to tackle Kevin down, he broke free and backed himself against a venue wall. In a split second, he made eye contact with a girl who had just been watching Christina perform. He had tears in his eyes as he pulled out the second gun and shot himself in the head. Concertgoers and venue employees were screaming and frantically trying to escape while the lifeless 22-year-old was on the ground, bleeding from her head and body. Paramedics arrived shortly after 911 was called and rushed Christina to the Orlando Regional Medical Center, where she was pronounced dead just before 11 p.m. Even though it had just happened, it was clear that this had been a targeted attack, and authorities wasted no time dissecting whatever they could about Kevin Loibel to understand his motives. Christina's autopsy would reveal an entrance wound at the top right temple area, showing signs of having been shot at from a two-foot range. Her skull was fractured, leading to significant brain bruising. A second bullet had entered her chest on the right side, puncturing her lung and breaking her ribs. A third entrance wound near her left shoulder would puncture the other lung and cause numerous lacerations. Gunshot wounds of the head and chest would be the cause of death, as all Christina's wounds were fatal. However, the shock and horror of Christina's murder would barely make headlines for less than a day. When Omar Mateen would kill 49 people and wound 53 others at Pulse Nightclub in Orlando on June 12th, this act of violence was unfathomable, as it would be the deadliest mass shooting by a single gunman until the Las Vegas shooting the following year. Once again, a new level of panic and mourning would suffocate the nation, wondering why we've ended up here, and how will we find our way out. The investigation of Christina's murder seems, on the surface, to be simple math. Overzealous boy stalks celebrity girl, and it ends fatally. And even though Kevin did his best to try and make it difficult for authorities to piece together who he was and why he had done this, there would be scraps left to fill in some of the big picture. Back home, Paul Loibel had been unaware that the fabric of his reality had been forever changed until a call from Best Buy revealed that Kevin hadn't shown up for his shift at work. He had the luxury of living with his family and choosing to only work weekends so that he could spend the rest of his waking hours glued to his computer screen. But Kevin never missed a shift, ever. The no-call no-show double surprised his co-workers, because Kevin had also never requested a day off in all his eight years of working there. His hotel room couldn't have been any more ordinary. 
He left it clean with some takeout containers in the garbage and a Starbucks coffee cup on the nightstand by the bed, which he'd sloppily made. Inside the hotel room safe, Kevin had left behind his house keys, toiletries, his gun case, and 75 hollow-point bullets. If Kevin had a final message, it would die with him. Orlando Police Chief John Mina would tell a reporter that Kevin traveled to Orlando planning to commit murder and travel back to where he came from. This is based off Kevin reportedly making return travel arrangements of some kind, but it begs the question why he not only hid his hard drive before leaving the house, but police would discover it had also been destroyed. Even Kevin's cell phone had been encrypted, so they were unable to extract any data from it. And Kevin himself didn't have any social media accounts to scour through. He was just constantly consuming content on the outskirts. Also taking into account his strange farewell to Corey, his omitting of travel plans to his family, a part, if not all, of Kevin must have known that he wasn't coming back home. There had been a purpose in taking two guns, and when Kevin pulled the second one on himself, that was confirmation that taking his own life was definitely on his list of possible outcomes. He may have been detached from reality in some way, but Kevin played enough video games to know that you can't take an action like that without some sort of retaliation. The first crew of people you see at a concert are the security. When he walked through those doors, Kevin Loibel knew he wasn't walking out of them alive. Concert attendees that had observed his behavior that night would describe him as nervous and kind of creepy. These comments didn't contradict what little Kevin's co-workers knew about him as well. Ever since he started at Best Buy, he'd been extremely awkward with people. He hopped between different departments until managers finally realized that his best placement was working on computers for the Geek Squad, limiting his customer interactions. He pretty much had no friends, and even in his own house, only left his bedroom when he absolutely needed to. Luckily, Corey would be able to fill in some gaps for police, being one of the few who Kevin had opened up to regularly. Throughout the years of their friendship, Corey had watched Kevin grow up in a chaotic household that was toxic and abusive. He told Corey about his mother throwing dishes at him or beating him with a frying pan, even breaking his brother's arm once. Nora Loibel died in 2010 of an accidental aspirin overdose, but Kevin confided in Corey that he'd told his mother to kill herself out of anger. Go ahead, do it, a 21-year-old Kevin encouraged. Months before this, Kevin had already begun to spiral. After three years of attending St. Petersburg College, he dropped out and started spending all of his time playing World of Warcraft. The guilt he expressed only seemed to further his morose attitude, and Kevin continued to lose himself completely, checking out on reality as often as possible. Kevin was about as close with his family as he was with his co-workers, and remained mostly a predictable mystery. But Corey's account of turbulence in the home had been correct. Over the span of two years, police were called to the Loyal home at least six times because of fights between Kevin and Dawn, the new woman that Paul was dating. Reports would show a pattern of violent events. In 2013, Dawn told the police that Kevin had slammed a door on her arm and broke her wrist during an argument. However, according to the officers, Dawn was very intoxicated, and Kevin's story was that he didn't know her arm was in the doorway when he was fleeing to his bedroom. They found it believable. Authorities were also called to the home in 2014 regarding an incident between Dawn and Paul. Nobody was ever arrested for these visits, but it's evident that there was a lot of chaos in the home. Besides these family situations, Kevin had never been arrested or had any run-ins with the police. Kevin's ability to be violent never officially made it to paper. His clean record and lack of diagnosis of any kind allowed him to purchase guns legally. And even though Kevin's obsession with Christina spilled over into every area of his life, stalking is an insidious behavior that is often hard to spot when it's kept so secretive. 
A lot of things that Kevin was doing, such as changing his appearance, weren't necessarily accompanied by an outright explanation that it was for Christina. A lot of these things were implied by reading between the lines of the things he said. For instance, Kevin had always been an atheist for as long as Corey had known him, to the point where they'd even gotten into a couple philosophical arguments here and there. But once Kevin found out that Christina was a devout Christian, he told Corey that he changed his mind because she helped him see the world in a different way. That if there was a God, he could see that God in her. But Kevin's discussions about Christina were still few and far between. The extent of his infatuation wasn't fully known to anyone. He hadn't even mentioned Christina to his family. Beyond his troubled past at home, little to no predictors rang out alarm bells. If anything, Kevin is a prime example of how there is no single archetype when it comes to stalkers. Intent and motive can also explain a lot about their underlying classification. We're used to seeing simple, obsessional stalking, which is the most common type. They're usually male, and their target is someone they know, often a former coworker or ex-lover who they may feel wronged by. The most rare form of stalking is false victimization syndrome, where they either consciously or subconsciously play the role of a victim, when in reality they are the actual quote-unquote stalker. Love obsessional stalking involves a victim that is either a casual acquaintance or a complete stranger, to whom the stalker makes themselves known with their behavior. This is usually the category that most celebrity stalkers fall under, but interestingly, it appears that Kevin never bothered to attempt getting Christina's attention online. In this way, he also slightly veers off into the erotomania type as well, which are stalkers who believe that their victim is in love with them, and if it wasn't for outside forces or people, they would be together. The context of a relationship between victim and stalker is also an important component when trying to understand typology and motive. This is divided into two basic categories, intimate and non-intimate. Intimate stalking is when a stalker knows their victim and seeks to re-establish a relationship of some kind. Simple, obsessional intimate stalking is often followed by a history of domestic violence. In contrast, non-intimate stalking implies no relationship whatsoever with the victim and begins after a brief encounter or observation. Divided into two categories, non-intimate stalking is either organized or delusional. Organized meaning that the one-way anonymous communication is methodical and calculating, and delusional meaning that the stalker holds a false belief that they in fact have a relationship with the victim, yet it only exists because of their psychological fixation. Kevin was obsessed in his non-intimate delusion, and above all else, seemed to desire the ultimate possession of Christina. Even face to face, he'd chosen to say absolutely nothing, and instead, shot her immediately. At some point that nobody can be sure of, Kevin stopped improving himself for her, stopped moving toward his fantasy, and recoiled back into his lonely rage. If he couldn't have Christina in life, he would have her in death. Without warning of any kind, he exploded his hurt onto every person at the plaza that night. Every person who had never before doubted their safety at a concert venue. Every person who had just been touched by the kindness and spirit of Christina. They would now be left with no explanation in the midst of their loss and sadness. Just the devastating silence of the aftermath of a bullet that had started to become all too familiar. Corey would be the main source to paint a blurry picture of Kevin and his feelings about himself, the world, and Christina Grimmie. His family would understandably remain silent, leaving a handwritten note on their front door that read, Deepest sorrow for the lost. To the family, friends, and fans of the very talented, loving Christina Grimmie. No other comments. 
There had been a definite pattern of chaotic and violent interactions throughout his time at home. But what other contributing factors or missed signs that led to Kevin's decision most likely stayed with his only true confidants, his computer and his phone? Adam Levine of Maroon 5 would pay for Christina's funeral in New Jersey on June 17th at the Berlin Cemetery. The ceremony itself was private, but thousands of fans would show up for a public memorial in Medford the next day, paying their respects in a tangible disbelief. Plenty of notable celebrities and peers of Christina would offer their condolences online, express their own loss, and dedicate performances in her honor. Four days after Christina's murder, the Plaza Live would reopen and pay tribute to her. Orlando police would reevaluate the plaza's security. Other contestants of The Voice were given protective escorts, and celebrities on a smaller scale, such as YouTube personalities, began to hire private security. No longer did you have to be a household name like musical star Selena or actress Rebecca Schaefer, who were both murdered by obsessed fans. Yet another tragic reminder that it could happen to anyone, anywhere. VidCon, a three-day event in Anaheim, California, announced that it would be banning informal meet-and-greets with its creators, as well as doubling its security staff to 450 officers and adding metal detectors. Even though Christina's murder and the Pulse shooting weren't connected in any way, both of them overlapped when it came to a similar societal reaction, desperate for an answer to a continuing epidemic. On June 23rd, Gun prevention organization Everytown and Billboard magazine would collaborate on a letter to Congress titled An Open Letter to Congress, Stop Gun Violence Now. It was signed by nearly 200 artists, asking for background checks on every gun sale and suspected terrorists to be blocked from purchasing guns. Whether they knew Christina or not, they all knew exactly what it felt like to put yourself in a room full of strangers, trusting that the venue and security and event planners have done their due diligence to make sure that you're safe. Six months later, in December 2016, the Grimmie family would file a wrongful death suit against the concert promoter, the security company at the Plaza Live concert, the owner of the venue, and several other entities. Because Florida law states that owners aren't held liable for attacks on their property, the lawsuit was dismissed in May of the following year. The Grimmie family was allowed to file again, this time making a distinction between the promoter and venue owner. The second filing would move forward, stating that the defendants had, quote, failed to take adequate security measures to ensure the safety of the performers and the attendants at the concert venue. Even reporters had spoken to witnesses who said that security was more concerned about outside food and drinks being brought in than the theater having weapons or other threats. Some bags were checked, some weren't. There were no metal detectors, and nobody was given a pat-down before entering the venue. The Grimmie family would also claim negligent infliction of emotional distress. The judge explained that more research would be needed in order to make a final decision. Throughout the legal back-and-forth, they would pour their grief and unexpressed love into creating the Christina Grimmie Foundation, resolving it to be a better way to create some sense of honor and make a difference. It supports families who have lost a loved one to gun violence or have a family member diagnosed with breast cancer, like providing childcare for single mothers, paying emergency bills, or assisting with temporary housing. The one thing Christina loved the most about what she did was how it allowed her to make other people feel less alone and that spirit lives on through the impact of this group. After a brave battle between grief and breast cancer, Tina Grimmie passed away on September 2, 2018, at 59 years old. And three years after their first lawsuit in December 2019, the Grimmie family voluntarily dismissed the case. 
Marcus would speak loud and proud about his sister, her fears around crowds of strangers, her endearing attempts to stifle her anxiety by reminding herself that her fans were usually just as nervous as she was, always giving a warm smile, an excited greeting, often opening her arms to anyone and everyone for a hug, no matter who they were. It wasn't Christina's job to judge the people that bought a ticket to her show and waited for autographs. They were the reason she was on stage. That job was put in the hands of the security staff, the venue, and the various management teams who let everyone down that night. There may not have been obvious predictors for Kevin's outward violence, but there had certainly been an opportunity for a better search and intervention before he stepped foot into the concert hall. With so many more shootings and close calls since June 2016, security measures have only continued to increase. And we wait, somewhere between half-protected and vulnerable, for a solution that may never come. Many of Christina's fans have uploaded videos to YouTube of previous meet-and-greets over the years. One in particular, a 2011 show in Connecticut that she'd done with Selena Gomez, has been taken and edited to add gunshots at a convenient point of the video when the fan holds the camera down towards the floor. Christina greets a couple of young girls who've been following her career since the start. She's in a white t-shirt with her hair back, in a reddish hallway of an amphitheater. The night that Christina died, she was in a two-piece black skirt and tank, with her hair down, signing autographs in a room where every wall was black. Like so many celebrity deaths supposedly caught on film, one quick glance and you can tell that this is a fake. These videos and the continual sharing of them is an insult to her family, her friends, and her fans. It's a fabrication for personal gain in a cheap exchange for the honor of Christina's memory. Even if the video was real, there's a fine line between journalistic integrity and casting ethics to the side for money, views, or attention. Not only is it traumatizing, but even possibly desensitizing and inspiring to the wrong people, like Kevin, who don't go online with good intentions. It takes away from Christina's story, and getting murdered was not the most exciting nor important thing that happened to her. It serves no one to remember her that way. In just a short span of time, Christina Grimmie managed to help set the tone for the impact of social media on the music industry while building an impressionable fan base. She was relatable yet enthralling, able to command an entire stadium from behind a piano, spilling out sincerity and perfect pitch. The Grimmy family have continued to gift the world with her unreleased songs, even a full posthumous album of tracks inspired by her mother's courage, her love of ballads, and a theme of never-ending hope. Faith was something that Christina lived by in every way, always believing the best was yet to come. There's no doubt that she would have become one of the most prominent voices of our time, leaving even more of that bittersweet aftermath to coast on, spinning endlessly through history like a record on repeat, taken far too soon, but still staying with us forever.